we need to talk about ideas, good ones and bad ones. We need to learn stuff about the world. We need an honest, intelligent, thought-provoking and entertaining review of what the hell happened on this planet in the last seven days. We need to sit back and listen to the Iron Fist and the Velvet Glove. Welcome back, dear listener. We're up to episode 87 of the Iron Fist and the Velvet Glove. With me this time, the Rational Razor himself, Hugh. Welcome aboard. Thank you, Trevor. Good to be here. Yes. So, uh, dear listener, we'll, we'll get through a few minor items or just sort of newsy things that have happened in the religious secular world and then talk about other stuff. So, a couple of things to kick off with. Um, uh, this one I found... Um, a lo- titled long-awaited medical study questions the power of prayer and um would you believe dear listener that there's been a scientific study done on the value of prayer when it comes to heart surgery and uh in this one um well can you believe that i think this is the u.s government must be has spent $2.3 million on prayer research since 2000, and there's other groups have spent similar amounts. So it's quite a topic in the US is actually investigating how, how well prayer is working in the medical fraternity. But what they did, I had a, a group of people undergoing some sort of um, uh, heart surgery, and they had three groups. Two of them were prayed for, and the third one was not. And of the ones being prayed for, half of them knew that they were being prayed for and half of them had no idea that they were being prayed for. And they then, of course, looked at how they performed after the surgery and to detect if there was any discernible difference um, at the end of the day. And, Hugh, it was interesting in that what they found was that people who knew that they had been prayed for actually had a higher rate of, of... post-operative complications than the other groups. Yes. And the theory is that people might have been suffering some sort of performance anxiety knowing that they were being prayed for and and that this actually might be detrimental for people to be told that you're being prayed for, of all things. Yes, unbelievable, isn't it? And also later in the article... It mentions a 1997 study in, in New Mexico, the University of New Mexico, involving 40 alcoholics who found the men and women who knew they were being prayed for fared actually worse as well. So it actually confirms that that earlier study, although they said in both that it might have just been a, an accident of statistics. Um, but, Trevor, I'm not sure if you and I can really, could really, <laughs> would really be wanting to... Um, to promote the idea that prayer actually makes things worse or else we'd have to accept the idea that it might make things better. Well, um, I don't know. I mean, it's possible that something could have a negative effect only and not a positive effect. I mean, that's what this study is saying. That Yeah, true. It, you, you would think that people who thought they were being prayed for would, would actually be be um, have better results, even as a placebo type effect that they would they would consider that they had a few more people rooting for them. Well, one of the theories here was that um, uh, they had some sort of performance anxiety and uh, Dr. Bethia said, it may have made them uncertain, wondering, am I so sick that they had to call in the prayer team? (laughs) (laughs) 
<laughs> well, yeah, you'd have to, if you're participating in that study, you'd have to wonder whether you're actually getting the right medical treatment or whether they were just relying on prayer to help you. So perhaps that's the anxiety that they had. Yes, yes, they might have started <laughs> worrying about medical treatment. Which is all perfectly legitimate. So anyway, uh, the researchers had asked members of three congregations, St Paul's Monastery in St Paul, the community of Teresian Carmelites in Worcester, and the Silent Unity, a Missouri, a Missouri prayer ministry near Kansas City. And um, they were given the names and initials of the... Um, sorry, first names and first... First names and first initials of the of the oh I'll try that again the first names and the initials of their last names and asked to pray for them for a successful surgery with quick healthy recovery and no complications so they're even given instructions on how to pray so so there you go dear listener uh, if you're minded to pray for somebody which is probably unlikely if you're listening to this podcast but if you are then. Don't tell the person that you're praying for them. And perhaps if you are sick and undergoing heart surgery, tell your friends, if you are going to pray for me, don't tell me. (laughs) Uh, And uh, the study was um, run by a fellow who um, is convinced that prayer does actually work. Mm. So he had had some skin in the game. He really thought it would work. That's right. Yeah. Mm. Yeah. Crazy ideas are not limited to the USA, and uh, the Mormons, of course, are active in Australia, Hugh, and interesting article where uh, in Victoria, in the Archive Centre, there's a, uh, a group of Mormons have been helping uh, go through um, a lot of old records and helping to digitise those records, um, and they do that for... Um, genealogy reasons trying to work out where people have come from and they send that information back to uh, their headquarters and it all seems great free um, free workers who are d- diligently and happily beavering away at this task but there is a, well could you call it a sinister side to it Hugh with the Mormons oh, I think there's definitely a catch here isn't there mm. The catch is that in the Mormon faith, they believe you can baptise somebody after their death. And what they do is, um, well, they particularly look for relatives of Mormons, uh, sort of ancestors, who they can post-death baptise into the Mormon faith. And they even go beyond that here. They'll just baptise anybody. They're just (laughs) baptising people. uh, Prince. And or uh, <laughs> Michael Jackson or some um, some very well known people. Mm. It, w- it was discovered at one stage the Mormons were baptizing Holocaust victims, so known Jewish Holocaust victims, and the Mormons were going through and baptizing them into the Mormon faith. And then, you know, the Jewish societies had to say, "Stop baptizing our dead ancestors. Show some respect, please." Outrageous, but. But on the plus side, at least they baptised Hitler. Did they? So they're covering both sides of that that um, that historical conflict. Mm. And um, Gandhi, Marilyn Monroe, and Elvis. Mm. Who's so, that? I've told the story before, but who was the um, the guy who ran for president? Who was the Mormon? Uh, Mitt Romney. His yeah. his father-in-law was um, an avowed um, atheist, and 
after his father-in-law's death, Mitt Romney baptised the man into the Mormon yeah. faith, knowing full well that he was anti-Mormon and an atheist. So um, you just can't stop these people sometimes. A captive audience. Mm. In other news, Hugh, still in Australia this time, um, do you know anybody in the army? Have you got any relatives in the army? Do you have an army family at all? No, but a couple of friends who have been involved in the army. Mm. It'd be an interesting culture to work in. And uh, let's face it, it takes a certain type of person to go out into the battlefield and shoot people and, you know, or do all the sorts of things that army people do. And there's been a, a, a diversity revolution in the Australian army, Hugh, and um, this article, which is from Miranda Devine. Have you, have you read much from Miranda Devine? Yes. Um, she writes for The Telegraph and um, she appears on Sky quite a bit. She's She's... Not usually sympathetic to progressive causes. No, she, she's, <laughs> she's not. A, no, she's a, she's a shocker. But some of the things she says in this article are quite good. Yes, I can remember previous articles where I've, I've been shaking my head about what she said. So um, you take a little bit of this with a grain of salt. But anyway, um, the, the nuts and bolts of this article are that uh, they've gone crazy in the army with, with diversity training and... They took a group of young soldiers, future leaders, put them on a $30,000 program um, uh, where they could become champions of change and stamp out the white Anglo-Saxon male culture uh, that they were told had no place in the military. And so a hand-picked group was taken to Sydney and Canberra and subjected to five days of diversity indoctrination, is how (laughs) Miranda has described it. On day one was a three-hour session from an imam explaining his Islamic conversion testimony and proselytising the benefits of Islam, according to one participant who took detailed notes. The lecture went down so badly that a planned visit to a mosque uh, scheduled for the next day was cancelled without explanation. Um, A bit later, gender diversity expert Professor Robert Wood criticised the predominance of Anglo-Saxon males and banter culture in the army. And in another exercise, um, these guys were asked how they would inclusively manage a diversity scenario in which a digger under their command converts to Islam, requiring him to pray five times a day, eat halal food and fast at Ramadan. And this guy says, I felt like I was sitting in a North Korean indoctrination camp. (laughs) I would love to have been a fly on the wall on that one, Hugh. (laughs) Uh, Yeah. I was a bit concerned about this one when you you put it on the list, but but really when you've got the bullets flying overhead and the the missiles dropping and and all, all of this, it's... You know, you're not you're not so much worried about people triggering you by the things that they say, are you, or by uh, by your colleagues being totally inclusive and using the correct sort of language when they're talking to you. So it seems like um, overkill. I mean, there is a case of horses for courses in certain yes. parts of life where you just have to say, I mean, for people to risk their lives for their 
for their team members, you need an incredibly tight group to do what these guys have to do. Tighter than anything that's going to happen in civilian life, let's face it. You've, You've got to acknowledge the realities of situations. I mean, do you go to a bunch of fashion editors and magazine editors and say, well, there's enough of these beautiful people. We need a whole bunch of ugly people in here for diversity reasons. You know, it doesn't matter whether you're going to sell product or not. I mean, at different times, you just have to say, we need a certain type of person. People are different. We need a certain type of person for this job. And to pull off this job, we need people to be so committed for each other that they will literally take a bullet for somebody. And that yeah. doesn't happen by magic. You have to set up a very intense mutual cooperation atmosphere and you just can't play around with that so easily. I just think it smacks of being unrealistic of, of what goes on in real life. Yeah, and the other thing that um, about it was, um, have you noticed the word unconscious bias cropping up everywhere now? Um, unconscious bias is that word that um, that it, it does have a scientific background in psychology and I think it was um, um, brought up by Daniel Kahneman who wrote the book Thinking Fast and Slow and who's, which is a fabulous book um, which I'm currently reading. But unconscious bias is means that you, um, you have a whole lot of prejudices, prejudices but you don't know that they're, you're never conscious of them. But when in uh, these little social experiments that they do, they can show you that you do have them, and everyone does have them. You know, the majority group has them, the white, white Anglo-Saxons, plus all the minority groups have them. And so now there's a real training, a training uh, programs uh, uh, given over to showing you how you do have these prejudices. Yes. Which um, is seems to be being harnessed now as a political tool to champion diversity itself. Right. You can imagine how that that really just gets used as a gets weaponized as a as a tool to make sure that everyone has to be super aware of these things at all times. So it's it, kind of a nice way of it could be a nice way of saying you're racist. It's just you're racist, but you are unconsciously racist. Yeah, this kind just, of thing. Trevor, just be aware that you're a racist. <laughs> Look, just, just 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 keep that in mind and the uh, <laughs> perhaps perhaps uh, what people are criticizing about it is that uh, just be conscious of the fact that you're not conscious of the fact that you're a racist so your consciousness of that fact really is not going to do you any favors anyway because it's an unconscious thing that you're not going to be able to stop so um, so it kind of de- defeats the purpose in a sense of telling you all about it if only to make it, to weaponize it in such a way that you you know you have to be kinder and more gentler to people just because they are of a different persuasion in some way than you are. Yes, if they could come up with some facts and say, well, here are some facts to show that you were unconsciously biased in this situation and you could, in the cold light of a day, look at those facts and go, huh, you know what, I think you're right. I think maybe I was. I mean, that's yeah. possible, but that's probably not what really happens and it's the results are a bit yeah. more nebulous than that so it sounds to me a little bit like that uh experiment they did with um white cops in the usa and they put them in a scenario where where people are jumping out at them and they have to either shoot them because they're the enemy or or not shoot them because it's a lady pushing a pram sort of thing and 
they showed those participants that they had an unconscious bias in that they were more likely to shoot at a young black man. And um, the interesting part of that was that when they subjected black police officers to the same test, they also exhibited the same unconscious bias. So that was fascinating. But that's the sort of thing they're talking about. Well, you could talk about with this. Um, the other end of the spectrum, as you say, it's an unconscious bias. You know, you're a racist, and in fact, you're not. It's just their perception of you is so. Well, it is. Every, everyone has it, so it's, it doesn't mean that you're that you're a racist. But um, it, there's a reason for it as well. In his mm-hmm. book, he talks about uh, Daniel Kahneman talks about think um, thinking fast and thinking slow. And so, type one thinking is that fast, intuitive thinking mm-hmm. where you perhaps are not fully conscious of the reasoning. You're not thinking hard about it. It's the same sort of thinking that allows you to say that, oh, if a black person's jumping out of that, out of the thing and attacking you, you might unconsciously think that that's more of a threat. Mm. Um, but it's also the same sort of thinking that allows a fireman to know that they need to evacuate the building immediately just after everything has gone quiet, yet there's no real rational reason apart from something that's stored in their experience that they're not quite conscious of. That um, allows them to escape from the building and then suddenly the floor collapses. Yes. So there is evolutionary reasons we have that we have that thinking. And that type one thinking actually dominates our thinking. Our type two thinking has to be engaged um, very consciously. So I think it is, I think it is a relevant thing to talk about, but I don't think it's, I think the way it's being used. As a, as as a lot of neuroscience is currently being used, it's being used in a way which takes it much much further than what the facts would should allow it to go. Hmm. Yep. Yep. There's that hard wiring there, which is not necessarily evil, but it's there and just mm. at times has to be recognised as such. Yeah. Uh, uh, Hugh, moving on. Uh, Catholic News Service. Um, there's been an update on the Vat- from the Vatican about bioethical teachings and what the Vatican considers is okay and not okay. And, right. Um, uh, interesting. One of the issues uh-huh. that's dealt with, apparently um, some of the vaccines that we use, Hugh, rely on... On biological material in order to create the vaccine, and um, some from aborted fetuses. Does this sound right to you? Yeah. Well, I, I wasn't aware of it, but um, apparently some of them come from the cells of aborted aborted fetuses. Hmm. So the Catholic Church is telling researchers they must not create such vaccines um, from aborted fetuses or from material. Uh, that originates from there, and they're kind of a bit fuzzy on whether parents can actually use the vaccines from that situation. So that was interesting. Um, uh, Ectopic pregnancies are still a problem? Yes. Yes. So in an ectopic pregnancy, directly suppressive measures against the embryo are prohibited while procedures exclusively aimed at saving the life and health of the woman are justified. So, Well, um, thanks, Catholic Church, for that one. Eh? Yeah. My wife's had two ectopic pregnancies, and if you, don't, if you don't get them treated straight away, the woman 
the woman's life is in direct danger. So yes. um, that's that's bizarre, and they just seem determined to, to stay in the dark ages. Mm. Uh, organ transplantation, uh, that's okay, provided you ascertain the death of the donor with certainty. <laughs> that's, I would have thought, fundamental. And... Um, uh, but not all human organs can be transplanted. Uh, they're not happy with the transplantation of human brain, testicles, or ovaries. So, uh, no transplanted testicles for the Catholic Church. Right. But the heart's okay. Yeah, that's okay. <laughs> uh, because, you see, the heart is not, as these other things are, inseparably tied to a person's unique and procreative identity. Right, but the brain is... Mm. At some stage, at some stage, Hugh, it's going to become an issue in this country as to what our private hospitals are allowing and not allowing in surgeries and um, in terms of birth control and all that sort of stuff that's just been discussed, which we'll have to get to at some stage. Um, we, the, we, the Catholic Church should be required to advise where the soul um, resides because... Um, wouldn't it reside in the heart? I mean, Aristotle and Plato thought that the mind uh, resided in the heart. Mm. And that was that went on for quite a few centuries. That that belief. Um, you would. How is this? How is there not a, not a part of the soul in the in the heart that gets transplanted or the lungs? Well, based on the organs that they're refusing to um, sanction as being transplantable. Uh, according to the Catholic Church, the soul either relies, resides in the human brain or the testicles, or both, Hugh. <laughs> but if you get a heart transplant, say it is part of it is in the heart, perhaps you get a double chance of getting into heaven. Yeah, well. Two souls in one. Who knows? Who, uh, it's just, who knows what they'd come up with? Um, I was having a different discussion with some friends of mine about the, um, about the Virgin Mary and 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 her conception and whether she was a virgin or not and it's amazing when you when you google these things the different so-called scholarly articles that have discussed whether um you know Mary's mother was a virgin or or not um and and the theories that people have about such a concept so you would anything's possible for them to discuss in terms of the soul and where it's where it resides um I've never really understood that. Why, why, why is it required that Mary is a virgin? Uh, um, because Mary was considered perfect, um, and and you and I, Hugh, uh, the moment we're born, have original sin because original uh, sin okay. is transferred what? through the act of sexuality, so through human intercourse. So... Um, so that was the problem with Mary, was that, hang on a minute, if her parents had just procreated her the normal way, then she would have been blighted with original sin. So there's two sort of doctrines. One is that it, that she was, her mother was magically inseminated the same way that Mary was, or that somehow God provided some special dispensation from original sin for Mary that nobody else got. So yeah, that's that's all part of all part of that original sin being passed down through the act of sexual intercourse. Yeah. Seems so obvious now. It's it's a bit like the Trinity. 
isn't it? That it's, that it's um, something that they've come up with to to justify their other beliefs yeah. once they've realised how <laughs> how improbable and unlikely they are. Yes, yes. And um, a couple of other things here. Um, uh, questions without notice. So, um, so this is a little segment because if I give you too much. Um, of a hint about these things, Hugh. I know you'll be on to me. So uh, these are like just sort of hidden things from. So, little quiz for you, Hugh. Now, this this is a tough quiz. It's one of those quizzes where you're not expected to get the answer, and if you get anywhere near close or or something along the right lines, you've done extremely well. So here's the first here's the first question. Okay. What what do Yonix, Cooper's beer, and Peter Carey novels have in common? Sponsored by the Bible Society. Well, close, close. They're they're all on the the Iron Fist hit list of banned products that I will never purchase. Uh, okay. <laughs> I I refuse to buy Yonix products products because they sponsor Nick Kyrgios, and I think he's a blight on Australian tennis. Yes, agree. Uh, Peter Carey did some abominable things um, in relation to. Um, oh, it was uh, a publishing group and the and the Satanic Verses. I'll talk about that at another, at another time. But basically, he was terrible when it came to um, freedom of speech issues. And yeah. Cooper, Cooper's, beer, Cooper's beer has been in the news, Hugh, because they are. I did not know this. Um, the Cooper's family, who own Cooper's Beer, have been long-time donors to the Bible Society, along yes. with other religious and conservative groups. And there was a, uh, a funny thing with Tim Wilson and Andrew Hastie where they were having a chat about marriage equality while drinking a Cooper's Light Beer, and there's been a bit of a backlash against Cooper's yes. Beer. Good. Let's have an argument about this, because I, I, I disagree with that view. Which view is that? <laughs> I, I, I think that this this is um, I don't see why Cooper's beer has got anything to apologize for and I'm Trevor I am absolutely outraged that they've come out and apologized for it so here's an opportunity for us to have a disagreement okay uh, well I my, my issue with Cooper's is that it's owned by a family who are longtime supporters of the Bible Society and other religious groups, so I'm putting them in the in the position of like sanitarium, if you like. So, yes. so I, as a consumer with um, an ethical consumer, have decided I don't want to buy products that uh, where the profits are going to causes that I despise. So, yeah. I will exercise my rights to choose alternative products so I know that the money doesn't go into the hands of what I consider to be despicable groups. There you go. Yeah. Lunatics. Yes, well, I agree with that. Um, but I, I, um, I, f- I found the political correctness outrage that happened after this debate. What, what actually happened was that um, Coopers were going to put the words, some Bible quotes on their beers. Fair enough. They've had a long-standing relationship I don't particularly have a problem with that. I wish more people would put the quotes of Richard Dawkins, Sam Harris, and Trevor Bell on 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 other products, but they won't because they're too scared of um, 
touching anything that's controversial. And so that means largely the issues that you and I discuss remain in the shadows. And we have people like Ayan Hirsi Ali and Sam Harris, their banners get banned and any advertising um, gets gets um, gets hidden. So I, I look at it from that point of view. I don't think the Bible Society is one of the more pernicious uh, groups um, out there. I think the Bible is a valuable document, particularly from a literature point of view. Um, really? And, but, but if Cooper's was using that to push those views down people's throats, I would have had a problem with it. But the debate, I watched the debate. It was a short debate between Tim Wilson and uh, who was it, Andrew Hastie. Mm. Uh, it presented both sides of the argument. I don't think it presented a prejudicial case. Some people did. I, I really didn't think it did. I, um, I attended the Religious Freedom Roundtable, which Tim Wilson hosted, mm. and um, notwithstanding the objections of a lot of people in our secular groups, I actually thought he was pretty good. Um, he's an agnostic. He, he, he says in the video that he's close to being an atheist, but he's an agnostic searching for a spiritual path. And to be honest, I think it was, yes, I can understand people like me having a problem with a product associating with the Bible or associating with um, a particular religious group, mm -hmm. and maybe I would choose it, but I wouldn't be all over Facebook condemning it and being, being utterly outraged by it. Mm. I reckon that's fair enough, Hugh. And uh, yeah, I guess so. As you probably picked up, my argument wasn't so much with the debate between the two guys. It was more now that I know who's behind the company, I'm just prefer not to deal with them. Um, yeah. But yeah, you're right. They can. That's the whole thing. Freedom of speech. Hey, which we're going to talk about in a minute. Is um, go ahead, say whatever you like. But uh, people may decide to. Um, sort of not buy your product if you want to uh, take that risk. So if you're going to start talking about um, ethical issues like that and dipping your toes in that water, you've got to be prepared to have them bitten off occasionally. So it's sort of a, yeah. a risky path for companies to tread, I think. And it's probably a few boardroom, boardrooms around Australia who have looked at that and gone, gosh, let's not get anywhere near these topics. Let's stay clear of them. Yes, such as Telstra when they... Um they supported marriage equality and then were browbeaten out of supporting marriage equality by the Catholic Church. And to be honest, most companies really couldn't state a position because if you're a public company, how can you really represent what the shareholders and staff and everybody think about any issue anyway? I mean, there's such a diversity of opinions. Yes. Um, this is sort of seems to be a privately owned company, so they can do it to that extent. But I guess a lot of companies can't because you can't presume to be speaking on behalf of all of the stakeholders of a company. Most I times. think it was quite poor what they did in that they they obviously have had a relationship with the Bible Society. You, you'd, you'd have to be surprised if they didn't agree with the views of the Bible Society on same-sex marriage, and I guess that's why everyone weighed in, mm -hmm. given that they have that relationship you would think that they would probably have a traditional view of marriage. And and yet they were browbeaten into taking it off and removing the Bible Society from their beers mm. and then apologising and then saying that they support um, same-sex marriage and adding their name to marriage equality. Mm. So they were browbeaten into 
total total reversal by the by their corporate agenda by profits. But when you say they were browbeaten, what was it that people said? You can't say these things, or is it that people were saying, "Thanks for sharing your views. Now that I understand your views, I don't want your product." And if, it it's, was, the, if, if it's the second, that's okay. Yes, I, I think it is, and, and it was. It, 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 but it was a bit harsher than quite that, because it was outrage on social media, followed by pubs um, taking Coopers off tap. Right. So they started, and people were petitioning for Coopers to be taken off tap. And so a couple of pubs put out statements, and then there was three or four, and then suddenly Coopers came out and said, we disavow our previous position. And they had previously defended, even in the 24 hours previous, they had defended their association with the Bible Society. So I think it's quite, I think it's quite sad that they had to go against their principles and what they were trying to promote. But, um, you know, bad luck. If you want to be in the game of, of supporting um, religious groups and I suppose people who would be supporting secular groups, they're going, to have to, they're going to have to wear it. If you want to get involved in political issues, and then you, you're going to have to be prepared for the, for the um, backlash that may come with it. Yeah. Uh, so this leads on to the topic of freedom of speech, Hugh, and a couple of things have happened during the week um dear listener not too long ago you looked at your podcast app and saw that a new episode of the iron fist and velvet glove podcast was available to download did you silently think to yourself wait a new podcast i like listening to those guys if so then you qualify as a potential donor to the podcast your donation will help cover some expenses But more importantly, your donation tells the boys that they are on the right track and to keep up the good work. A dollar a show is all they ask. Go to their website at ironfistvelvetglove.com.au and click on the donations link. One is uh, Bill Leake passed away and with a bit of luck, I'll play a bit of his audio of a speech that he gave just before his, the day before his death, I think, because they were launching a book of his cartoons and he gave a speech, um, and here is a little bit of that speech. Now, I know that it's International Women's Day, so I think the first thing I should do is apologise for not being a woman. <laughs> it's, uh, it's particularly regrettable that I'm not a glamorous Sudanese-Egyptian-Australian woman who wears a hijab, promoting a book about what it's like being a glamorous Sudanese-Egyptian-Australian woman who wears a hijab. If, if I was, this would not be the only event I've got lined up on my non-government-funded whirlwind trigger-warning awareness-raising tour. Now, when I, when I met the great Australian cartoonist Bill Mitchell about 34 years ago, he said, mate, A cartoonist only has to be funny once a day, but it's a lot harder than you'd think. But he had no idea how much harder it would be for me than it ever was for him. For a start, in order for Bill Mitchell to come up with a cartoon, all he had to do was take a serious political issue, exaggerate it to the point of absurdity, and draw whatever he saw when he got there. But I can't do that, because these... 
The ideas our politicians have these days are utterly ridiculous to start with. <laughs> and if you're starting at the point of absurdity, where are you supposed to go from there? I mean, what, I ask you, what, what on earth am I going to have to come up with to make teachers in the Safe Schools program look ridiculous when they actually start giving jobs to gimps? And how long do you think that it'll be then before some gimps rights campaigner accuses me of gimpophobia? Another reason why the job's so much harder now than it was for Bill Mitchell is because, unlike him, I can't just sort of breezily assume that people are looking at my cartoons hoping to get a laugh. Ever since conceptual art supplanted transcendent art, all art has been reduced to the level of graffiti. And to people reared on postmodernism and cultural relativism who can't tell the difference between Picasso and Banksy, I'm, I'm not a cartoonist working for a newspaper. I'm an artist exhibiting in a gallery that gets hundreds of thousands of visitors through the doors every day. Well, the work of a man like that has to be taken very seriously indeed. It has to be analysed. It has to be deconstructed. It has to be decoded by these people in a search for hidden meanings. And because art, like political activism, is a form of therapy, it's also supposed to reinforce and confirm their prejudices, not challenge them. Well, bugger that. <laughs> political correctness is a poison that attacks the sense of humour. Luckily for Bill Mitchell, it was tipped into our water supply at around about the time he retired. And since then, it's infected an awful lot of people. As the senses of humour of people suffering from PC atrophy, their sensitivity to criticism becomes more and more acute until they get to the stage where everything offends them and they lose the ability to laugh entirely. For your chronic PC sufferer, Feeling offended is about as good as it gets. So a good cartoon gives them an excuse to parade their moral superiority in 140 characters or less, scrawled on the dunny door of social media, where every other humorless halfwit who's seen the cartoon and felt offended can also join in the fun. And they do. In response to his death, uh, Hugh, gosh, there was some... Yeah, normally when somebody dies, it's kind of... Everyone says what a good bloke he or she was. Yeah. The, neg the negatives hold off for a little while. But, gosh, there was some terror, some harsh stuff said about Bill Leake in Sorry. social media where people were saying, basically, good riddance, the racist bastard sort of stuff. Like, really, yeah. really mean stuff. And... At the same time, Ayan Hersey Ali um, coming to Australia and um, a, uh, a Muslim organisation, the uh, Council for the Prevention of Islamophobia, Inc., um, have been active in, uh, in 
harassing venues that might be hosting her and telling them that they're going to be protesting, telling their insurers that there's going to be protests and basically giving the impression that all hell's going to break loose and really you probably don't want this woman speaking at your place. So sort of two issues of um, freedom of speech all lined up there. Hugh, got any thoughts on, on all of those? Bill Leake, Aeon Hersiali and, and Cooper's Beer? Yeah, um, perhaps um, start with Aeon Hersiali that um, Paul Monk, who writes for The Australian and who's associated with the Rationalist Society of Australia, wrote a very good piece on on the the doctor who was trying to spread uh, this alarm about her speaking. Yep. Uh, it was pretty much a, uh, I think he's a lobby of one, um, trying to drum up the fact that there's going to be 5,000-person protests at the hall where she was going to be speaking. Quite disgraceful behaviour. I think we have seen less of, less of a protest about her coming to Australia than what we would have seen in the US, which is probably a positive sign. Mm-hmm. And um, really, um, I think the reason for that is that it's, number one, impossible to protest that Ayan Hersiali is a racist. Mm. It's impossible to say that she's a misogynist. She's um, a Somalian dark-skinned woman who's been subject to female genital mutilation, forced marriage. She made a movie. The director of the movie was murdered and a note was pinned to his chest um, promising that she would be murdered next. And so she's been under protection since, I think, 2002. Um, She is um, very widely uh, reviled in, in the Muslim world and that part of the Muslim world which supports Islamism or, or holds a solidarity to Islam above all else. And um, she presents a really difficult problem for them because they can't brand her as a racist um, the same way they can do that to Sam Harris or, or to um, any of the other people who would speak out against um, extremist Islam. Plus, she's a formidable debater, formidable writer, and um, a person... Uh, of clear academic credentials. You, you, so, you, you just left one group out there, Hugh. The Southern Poverty Law Centre in the USA oh, yes. put her on a yeah. blacklist with Majid Nawaz. Which, so oh, yes, right. there's you know, is, Islamic groups um, who have blacklisted her in that sense, but the Southern Poverty Law Centre did as well. So, an alliance there between the left and and those groups. But keep going, yes. Yeah, so, I mean, that, that's outrageous. So I think that's one of the things we really need to argue against because free speech, once we... Free speech is one of those values that um, sits at the top of the hierarchy of uh, human rights because its dilution um, dilutes many of the other rights. We need the alternative opinions. We need opinions that are, are outrageous. Um, because when you look back at, at um, medieval um, Europe, when you look back at the books that were banned, the people who were executed, um, many of those many of those people were the people that changed life for the better, brought about enlightenment values, and we don't know what we don't know. And if we silence 
we silence people. We're not silencing. We're not just silencing people. We're we're robbing ourselves of the right to hear alternative points of view and right to inform ourselves of different arguments. So often I read columnists like, say, Miranda Devine, who generally I disagree with, but quite often, as we've seen today, you can get something quite valuable out of the argument. Just because we disagree with someone doesn't mean we should be banning them from speech. And um, in regards to Bill Leake, um, I thought David Marr's article Perhaps you could share that with with the, with the podcast. I thought David Marr's article on the Guardian was just superb on it. David Marr thought that he, in his later later years, Bill Lee had some questionable cartoons. He thought that that particular one about the drunk Aboriginal man wasn't good. I think he thought it was racist, but he's but he also felt that Bill Lee was a great Australian, and when he was good, he was the best. He just wrote a really powerful column about it. And, um, and, and that also we have to protect free speech and we have to have the right to have differing views on people like Bill Leake. Yes. Bill Leake's cartoon, particularly that cartoon about Aboriginal parental responsibility, it was an important statement um, that because of its controversy highlights the issue that he was trying to highlight, mm. that, um, that we, can't, we can't just allow politeness and diversity and identity politics to stop us from discussing some of the key issues involved. And so, yes, there's systemic um, structural racism. There is the, the disadvantage of Aboriginal communities, but still we have to address parental responsibilities in all communities. It doesn't matter what colour, what ethnicity you are or what you believe in. Mm. And that's what he was saying. And I think he made an important point. I think you did as well, and I think if I was a disadvantaged young Aboriginal person, you know, eight or nine, in a, suffering in a, you know, from also all the things that are going on, I'd have been happy with that cartoon being published because then maybe something would happen. And uh, yeah. um, so it depends where you stand from. So. Um, yeah, it's so easy to claim things are racist, but uh, yeah, it's an easy claim to make and it's a more difficult one to prove because it all depends on your interpretation of it and, well, did this apply to everybody or to some people or, and is it accurate or is it not accurate? So The usual, um, usual suspects came out in um, condemnation of Bill Leake. If you um, look at New Matilda, Amy, Amy McGuire, who we discussed a couple of podcasts ago, and um, Michael Brawl, who Michael Brawl always writes either accusing white people of racism against Aboriginals or accusing um, people of prejudice against Palestinians or Muslims or accusing Israel of being um, completely 100% in the wrong in the Palestinian-Israel dispute. Yes. Um, and he came out and said that um, don't worry about the death of um, Bill Leake he was a boring, grotesque racist. Yes. I mean, no doubt or quite likely the same people would complain about those sorts of comments made against their colleagues or people on their side of politics or issues. Um, they'd be the first to say, you can't say these things about people, but they've really let rip with some pretty hard stuff against 
Bill League. So I yeah. guess I guess the thing you'd say is that the friends of Bill Leake in this situation are not saying to these people, you can't say that about Bill. They're saying, well, they're defending him, you know, and um, but they're not saying stop saying those things. Um, and that's a key difference, I think, whereas yes. some of these people who are making these really vitriolic statements, uh, if they'd been said about some of their community leaders of whatever community they happen to represent, they'd be outraged and say, you can't say that. Withdraw it. Don't say it. So, yeah, yeah um, there's a double standard there I think you'd find applies. But um, Definitely is. Um, with, but the um, David Mars accusation at the Australian was that the Australian were saying you can't come and come out and say that because Bill Leake is is dead. But Bill Leake is allowed to say whatever he likes about um, Muslims or Aboriginal issues and all of that sort of thing. Right. So um, I think there's a double standard that applies to both sides of that right. debate. So the Australian did come out and say you shouldn't be saying that about Bill Leake, did they? Yeah, pretty well, pretty much. According to David Ma, they did, and look, yeah, it was three or four columns bemoaning people criticising Bill Lee and criticising those protesters on Q and A, and also calling for the ABC to apologise. Um, so it was pretty. It was pretty much ABC must apologise for these people coming out and saying something mean about Bill Lee after he died. Right. But I also like to add in there that it appears that the theme of this podcast has become that um, don't think you're safe in dying because people will call you a racist or else you might be converted to becoming a Mormon. Yeah. <laughs> you're not safe when you die, that's for sure. You're, <laughs> you're not safe. Um, uh, see, I, I, you know, I guess I'm sympathetic to Bill Leake, um, not the world's greatest fan by any means, but not for a minute would I want... I'm quite surprised by the vitriol, but not for a minute do I think you guys shouldn't say that. I'm just thinking to myself, well, that's really interesting that somebody has said that. Now I know more about that person. That tells me something about them. Uh, That's information that I can value and use. So this idea of shutting down debate because you don't like it is just wrong. And um, uh, I'm a big fan, as you know, of Kenan Malik, and I'll have a link to an article of his where he talks about free speech. And um, he says that now that we have these um, plural societies, um, he says it's inevitable that there are going to be clashes between groups and, and that the only way to deal with that is through open discussion. And... And not only is it inevitable, but but these clashes are important and that social progress only comes from uh, offending some deeply held sensibilities. So you mentioned before that, you know, when the Enlightenment came along and people were writing things that were considered blasphemous to the entrenched power of the time of the, of the Catholic Church in particular. And... Uh, you know, we have to, that was considered offensive at the time to to the church, but it worked out well for us that we allowed it. And yeah. what we've got happening now is a sort of um, 
as a secular version of blasphemy and this sort of you cannot offend sort of um, ideas that are coming out. So, so yeah, Ken Malik makes the point that if you want progress in your society, that means that entrenched power will have to be challenged at different points, and that's just necessarily going to sound blasphemous or a secular form of blasphemy that um, that entrenched power is not going to like. So if you want progress, you, you know... Different groups are going to rub up against each other, so yeah. don't don't get too hang, hung up on on offence as being a bad thing and terrible. It's actually a sign of social progress and a good thing, which I like yeah. that sort of theory. Absolutely, Absolutely. on the um, with the Coopers issue on my Facebook, I um, I mentioned that I think it's over the top. I agree with Tim Wilson. The whole thing's over the top. Why can't we have debate? Mm-hmm. And um, most of the people who generally agree with my views on secular issues, I'd say 90% of them disagreed with my view and felt that, no, this is a human rights issue. We shouldn't debate it. Uh, really? It does not need to be debated. It, it is a human rights issue and that's it. And so the, the, the offence was taken by some at having to debate this issue of particularly if they are from the LBGTI community, that why should we have to debate their rights? They're their human rights and they shouldn't be debated for something that's not even enshrined in law yet. So I find I found that mildly surprising and we have this, and the orthodoxy that we have, you know, we have to conform to an orthodoxy, even in microcosms such as Facebook, where we know everyone basically agrees with the same idea that um, same-sex marriage should be made legal. There is an orthodoxy within the orthodoxy that you that you need to subscribe to that view, or else, as I was copying, some fairly significant abuse, because I didn't agree to the orthodoxy within the with me within my own secular Facebook page. Wow, that's interesting. So, I've just finished reading a book, one of Ken and Malik's books. This one's um, from Fatwa to Jihad, which looks at. Um, he basically pins it down to Salman Rushdie and the Satanic Verses as being the start of what all of the issues we're talking about here happening. And he said that in relation to that, the you know the Satanic Verses that um, freedom to speak sort of won that battle but lost the war because the publishers in that situation held their ground and kept publishing it and. And that book is still published today and freely available. But mm. in subsequent um, um, matters that came along historically, like the Danish cartoons, for example, um, publishers folded and and did not publish the material in and, and wouldn't reproduce the material in any number of cases. And so uh, at the time of Salman Rushdie and the Satanic Verses, there was enough belief in the importance of free speech and the freedom to offend that that book was published and sure discussions were had but but subsequently uh, basically we failed we, we won that battle but we we lost the war is his sort of thesis on that so and Great. it sounds like yeah you're looking at that exact same thing here where people are saying yeah. no cannot publish it cannot talk about it uh, shut it down and the interesting thing in all this is it's the that just helps entrenched 
power that's already in place maintain its power. And many of the people who are arguing for this silence are the same people who would presumably be hoping for progress on issues. But you you can't have progress if you can't challenge established power. No, no, but... um people people seem the 18c debate the um argument that frustrates me is the same one that people seem often make the argument well why would you want to have the freedom to offend and insult people it's only because you want to say racist or sexist or um, defamatory things to people that you would want to have that removed which is absolutely not the case at all but for most people you know for people like um trevor for you and me where we know some of the things that we we will say might offend particular groups for a particular reason, even though we know that our intentions in saying them are not to offend. Yes. We have a unique understanding of that position, whereas whereas others don't. And whereas and some people, it's a similar situation to someone like Andrew Bolt. He doesn't think he's being racist, but no doubt a lot of us, like I certainly think he is in a lot of cases. Yes. Um, people who are of those views don't think that they don't think that they're racists at all and we should we should be able to hear and discuss debate and challenge those views yes we just entrench them further by not doing so yes yep oh hugh um just also still i guess uh, part of this freedom of speech issue the punch bowl story yes in new south wales where we had this this high school where the uh, the headmaster um, seemed to have converted to Islam and didn't want his school being part of a special program that was um, tracking whether there's uh, any danger of radicalisation happening in schools and that there's apparently 19 schools in Sydney that are under watch. And Media Watch had, a real, again, a really interesting piece where... One side of the of the media reported extensively on an issue, and the other side said nothing. And yes, we we had that in relation to that uh, Muslim cleric uh, talking about domestic violence as being, you know, a, a last resort, and buy your wife flowers before you resort to hitting her. Not being yeah. reported, and and this issue is such a big issue, and as Media Watch reported. <laughs> It did not make it onto the ABC's 7pm news and didn't appear on any of its radio programs and it didn't appear in the Sydney Morning Herald. Such a big news story. Again, this is scary when a big news item... And and there's more. And and there's more. There's an article that's come out in the Daily Telegraph today about it regarding Punchbowl uh, High and um, I'm quite sure that won't get reported on, uh, on Fairfax or um, Guardian or ABC either, I think it's quite scary that, that there are, um, you know, I've noticed for a while that you can't get certain comments up on um, on Fairfax if you comment on articles online, if you, you say something that's a bit too close to the bone in terms of some of these issues. But this punch bowl high um, school story, the extremism... Um, the danger of radicalisation in about 20 schools in Sydney is an important story. And um, I happened across another story from a few years ago that there was a real um, surge in Birmingham, Birmingham schools, um, where um, extremist groups of um, 
Pitsa to here were involved in trying to put um, principals in who were um, Islamists. Yes. Um, there was um, letters that were published in The Independent and in The Guardian, and then there was a formal investigation which was found that there was substance to the fact that there was a coordinated conspiracy to try and get um, Islamist, Islamism controlling schools, getting Christian scripture out of schools and installing fundamentalist uh, Islamic scripture into schools there. Um, and it's hard not to think that perhaps the same thing is happening in Western Sydney. Well, the New South Wales education boss, uh, Mark Scott, former ABC boss, you know, went on 2GB had admitted there was a problem. And, um, and that's, a, that's a big news story. And, you know, where do you... You know, you could be very sympathetic to either side of, of the debate, but you'd have to admit that that's deserving of attention. And the fact that major news outlets are not talking about it is a very disturbing, way more disturbing than if they'd come out with a false sort of story about it. The fact they haven't talked about it at all, I think... It's bizarre. I, I, think, it's, I think the punch bowl one is bizarre. The case of trade one, yeah. surprising. Yes. And then, um, but gosh, it makes media watch unmissable, doesn't it? It does. Uh, yeah. And what a great show, given that he, he regularly, almost in every episode, points out what the ABC has failed to do. Yes. Uh, yeah. I think, I think progressive politics is going the way David Rubin has said it's, it's gone in the States. Uh, have you seen his podcast saying, or his uh, video saying how, why he's abandoned the left? Yes. In the States, it's because of the regressive left. Yes. Um, I think we're, the self-censoring, um, self-censoring sort of um, tactic has just become becoming ever-present here. We, we're adopting the same sort of things that are happening in the United States, and soon will be no platforming people from universities from giving speeches. Hmm. Mm. Hugh, these are all big dangers to our society and they're happening right now and you know we're doing our bit to highlight them like people might think that oh just you know Australia's bubbling along quite nicely but we have got some serious issues developing that have to be addressed and we just cannot allow them to just be swept under the carpet because we'll we'll just be facing bigger and bigger problems down the track so between you and me and everybody else, we have to address these issues and talk about them because they are, they're big and they're important and they're happening right now. So, so I know you've got a time constraint, so we probably should call it quits at this stage and not try and launch into the discussion of uh, are we enlightenment or Christian based in our foundation of our country. That for another time, Hugh? next time yeah sure yeah. <laughs> no worries Trevor thank you very much very good thank you listener for tuning in we'll be with you again next week okay bye for now well dear listener did you enjoy that episode of the podcast if you did I've got a favour to ask uh, first up tell some friends let them know about the podcast You'll be discussing something at some time and you might be repeating something I've said and when you're talking to your friends, say, hey, I heard this on this podcast and it's worth listening to.
and maybe pick an episode that you think's a good one and direct them to it. Like grab their phone and go to their podcast app and search for Iron Fist Velvet Glove and subscribe <laughs> on their behalf on their phone and uh, and just put the word out. The other thing is you could become a patron and support the show. So if you go to our website, you'll see a link to Patreon and there are some different options for subscribing and paying per episode and really the amount that you pay depends on what you get from the podcast. So there's different levels ranging from $1.50 Australian to I think $10 and various ones in between. It's really what do you think it's worth? Is it worth a cup of coffee? Uh, Is it worth more than that, less than that? Whatever you get out of it because not everybody gets the same. Maybe you don't listen to the whole thing. Maybe you never talk about it with people. Maybe you really couldn't care less half the time whether the podcast is there. It just it'll be different for everybody. So if you get a lot out of the podcast, contribute a bit more. If you don't get much, contribute less. But in any event, you can subscribe there. If you don't like the idea of a regular subscription, the website has a link to a PayPal donation. So you could just do a one-off donation every now and again. So there you go. It'd be good to uh, spread the word, get a few more listeners, and that way, look, if we ended up getting more listeners and more money, we could do maybe a second episode or more special episodes, provide some more content. So it's up to you. If you think it's worthwhile, let people know. Thanks.